0: So here we are. Um welcome to the podcast launch party for The Most Important Medicine: Responding to Trauma and Creating Resilience in Primary Care. I'm so glad you're here. Um as promised, we have some drawings coming up later, but this is how things are going to go down tonight. I want to thank a few people. I'm super excited and humbled at the amount of people that signed up for the launch tonight. I want to talk just quickly about the journey of this podcast and and really highlight some upcoming guests and dreams for the podcast. The big chunk of our time is going to be talking with Dr. Ken Ginsberg around his work and the work of resilience. And then we'll have a couple of drawings. Um, I'll give you some facts on the podcast lowdown and ways to create community. And then we'll say goodnight. We will be in and out of here in an hour Um, And we're going to let Dr. Ginsburg go even sooner than that because he is on East Coast time and he is giving up this evening for us. So I'm glad you're here. Um, Let me just pause and um, I want to say thank you. So many of you who are on this call tonight know who I am. I'm a licensed psychologist. Um, so welcome to those of you that don't know me. I looked at the guest list. I think most of you do. Um, but this is these are my, some of my people that I want to thank. Um, first, I want to just thank my family. Um, They are excited about this venture, and it also takes time away from them every time I have a new project, as all of you know. So I just wanna thank my family for the sacrifices that they make. I wanna thank my project manager, Tegan, who's on our call today, and she'll be putting all the things in the chat box tonight. Um, She is a jewel of all trades and everything that you see on my website, on the podcast, on all of the things are beautiful because she does incredible graphic design and makes everything look fancy. Um, So all of my ideas look like they have meaning and purpose. Um, And then I wanna also thank um, these incredible physicians who have joined me on this journey. Some of you will recognize your pictures there from uh, the most recent retreat out at my farm. And um, really the encouragement for all of you saying, this is really important work. And in fact, Dr. Hassan, who's there at the bottom left in the light pink shirt, saying to me, after going through training around trauma-informed work, and we were trying to figure out the name for the retreat and the importance of that and building resilience within pediatric well-child checks, and how do we begin to talk about resilience um, and you know, playing around with it and doing scripts, and Dr. Hassan said, Amy, this is the most important medicine. That's what we should call it. It's the most important thing we should be doing, talking with kids and families and our patients about building resilience. And so here we are. Um, And then one last thank you to friends of mine who have just encouraged me to dream big dreams and do this podcast. So I'm super excited and grateful for all of you um, in encouraging um, me to do this. So it's been pretty darn exciting. Um, there it is looking all fancy, right? It's in Apple and Spotify and Stitcher and all the things as of today, you can go in, you can download it all the place that there are podcasts. It's there. Um, and it's been pretty overwhelming. I'm going to be honest. So there I am after, um, I may or may not have been crying when I was figuring out GarageBand and like uploading podcasts um, to a new tech um, space. And I may or may not have sworn at the people that I live with um, and all of you that encouraged me to do this. So um, I'm really great with content and I love talking about um, trauma-informed practices and how we mitigate that through building resilience. I am, turns out, not great at GarageBand. I don't think I'm quite cool enough, but I have figured it out. So All the things are are firing as they should be. Um, Just a brief discussion about the journey of this podcast. Um, I think anytime you've been in practice for a long time, um, which though I may look quite young, um, I've been doing this for 23 years now, and I wanted to have a more systemic impact on the kids and families that I worked with, and about eight years ago, I was invited by the Children's Health Alliance, Um, shout out if you are from CHA and you're on our call tonight, um, to talk with them about how we could build resilience in the pediatric field. And they approached me because of my knowledge in treating kids with trauma for many years and working in pediatric settings. And we all agreed that we should be talking about resilience at every single well child check. And I'll never forget Dr. Mashofsky saying to me, couldn't you just create a curriculum, Amy, where I could talk about resilience at every single well-child check? And I said, sure, I'll do that. And um, and I did. And it has allowed me to just grow into training and consultation with healthcare providers and professionals, host retreats, create memberships. But I always go back to Um, The fact that when we're in healthcare, we should be practicing in ways that are trauma sensitive and trauma aware and responsive to the needs of the people that are in front of us. Because as all of you know, um, you know, when a patient discloses that they've gone through something tough, um, or we're talking to them about ways to build strengths that are inherent to their family, what they've gone through isn't a surprise to them. It's only us not knowing and creating a holding space for them so that they feel less alone. And really that's my passion. That providers that I work with feel less alone in their journey, um, navigating things that feel hard for their patients and that patients feel less alone. Um, Whether that be a little kid who discloses to his pediatrician that he's being bullied or a young woman talking to her OBGYN about domestic violence. Um, Or a young woman disclosing to her nurse that she's gone through sexual abuse, creating a space and be able to hold that space is incredibly important. And if you're a provider, you are more poised than anybody to hear that information and to sit with that. So um, that's how this came to be. I wanted a, a space where there was free information accessible for everybody to learn about what it means to be trauma informed in healthcare. Um, and so I really believe it is the most important medicine that you can be providing as um, a physician in healthcare. So tonight we launch, we have our very special guest, Dr. Ken Ginsburg, who I'm going to um, introduce in just a moment. And I just wanted to put out here, these are other incredible physicians that I've already invited on and they've accepted. Um, and they're going to join us over the next many weeks and talk about their work in this field, what it feels like and the importance of talking about trauma, um, how it comes up in different areas and subspecialties. You'll see on there psychiatry and urology and diabetes um, and tonight, we're going to talk about pediatrics um, and lots more. I have big dreams for this. I really think we should be in story. Um, and when we are in relationship and when we are connected, um, we're doing good things for ourselves and the patients that we work with. I want to create trauma awareness in medicine and really transform healthcare through these stories of humanity. That's what I hope for the podcast. Um, So just a sweet um, quote down there from Fritz, from OHA, um, about the importance of creating these safe spaces. All right. So uh, without further ado, I want to introduce my special guest tonight, um, Dr. Ken Ginsberg. He is the he practices adolescent medicine at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and is the professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He practiced social adolescent medicine, and his research over the last 30 years has focused on facilitating youth to develop their own solutions to social problems and to teach adults how to better serve them. He is the founding director of the Center for Parent and Teen Communications, which works with key influencers to empower parents with the strategies and skill sets that will strengthen their family connections and position them to guide their teens to become their best selves it really works to shift the cultural narrative about adolescence being a time to just survive through and more so to be optimized and celebrated. You'll see some of the books that he's written there. In fact, I refer to his work a lot. If you've been to any trainings of mine, Ken has given me permission to talk about the seven C's and talk about resilience building with kids and families. And they're in these incredible books that he has He also has an online toolkit, which we'll link up to here in the chat box for you. And finally, he's the national resilience expert for the Boys and Girls Club of America and currently works with the Covenant House, which is for youth experiencing homelessness to solidify their practice um, that is rooted in the healing power of loving and respectful youth connections. So everybody give a, a virtual high five to Dr. Ken Ginsberg. All right, I'm going to stop my screen share here, so we can just have a chat here. Um, Welcome, and thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much, Dr. Amy. It's a privilege to be here, and the truth is that um, you already gave the bottom line, you know, in your introduction, not about me, but in your introduction about creating space, safe spaces where people can tell their truths and feel safe despite what may or may not have happened to them. That's the bottom line. And that's what you started by saying. So it made me really happy.
0: Oh, awesome. Will you tell us just a little bit more? I mean, like your, your biography speaks for itself, but will you tell us more about how you got into this work and why it was important to you?
1: You know, I'm an and medicine specialist. I've been doing this for about 35 years. And Um, In the beginning of practice, uh, pediatrics and really medicine in general was all about focusing on what was wrong with people. You know, you uh, would begin conversations, you would assess them for risk. You would ask the parent to leave the room um, and you would uh, at the end of the visit, you would have a essential message, which was like, don't get chlamydia. Um, Don't get chlamydia is not an inspirational message. Uh, It also paints people with a broad brush of brokenness. Mm -hmm. And we add to stigma and shame. And most importantly, when we focus on risk, when we focus on the problem, we interfere with relationship. And it is our relationship that creates the safe space for people to begin to heal and to begin to be able to talk about what happened to them. And it is our commitment to seeing all that is good and right in them that forms the relationship that creates the space that allows us to talk about chlamydia, right? I still talk about it. I still talk about problems, but in the context of all that is good and right, all you bring to the world, the strengths that you've exhibited, sometimes despite what you've endured. And so You know, my background is, you know, I had done a lot of street work already before I went into medicine with youth enduring homelessness. Uh, My background was in counseling. I never practiced as a counselor, but my academic background was in counseling. And all of those things were about seeing what was good about people. And I just began realizing that we needed more of that in medicine.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a lot of providers on this call tonight and we'll be watching later. A lot of teachers. I have a question about um, something you said a minute ago, getting the parents out of the room. Uh, Because I I was exactly like that when I was a young resident and starting my private practice. It was like, I'll just have the parents leave and I'll fix this kid. And then I'll kind of package them back up and send them back out into the world. Um, Talk to people about why that's maybe misguided.
1: Because parents of adolescents are asking a fundamental question in themselves. You know, everyone who thinks about adolescent development, we understand that the essential questions of adolescent development are who am I? Am I normal? And do I fit in? But no one understands what is the essential question of parents of adolescents, which is do I still matter? Yeah. And unless you answer that question resoundingly with a yes, you will give up your opportunity. To really be a guide and as much good as we do as providers if we can get parents to be three percent more effective to accept their child exactly as there are they are to see all the strengths even as you see the challenges if we can get parents to do that that will be so much more significant than what i can say in my office and i really believe that what i say in my office matters right But if I can get parents involved, it makes a difference. But Dr. Amy, let me be clear about something. I do have parents leave the room. But when I began practicing medicine, the parents weren't even in the room. And the idea was I would go into the room if they were there and go, now I'd like you to leave, please. And the message parents were receiving from me and others like me were, I need you to leave so that I can keep secrets about your child. and can probably do a better job of parenting than you ever can. So I still have parents leave the room, but with that, but after setting the stage where they understand what I'm going to be doing in the room, why, why the relationship is going to matter so much. And I'm also going to be having a relationship with them. I acknowledge that they're the most important people in their children's lives, but that this strategy, that this strategy allows me to partner with them to support their child, but that a child first sometimes needs to have a space of their own where they're not in fear of disappointing someone where Mm -hmm. they can ask any question they want without feeling like um, that person will assume that they're doing something or for lack of a better way of saying it freak out because they're just asking the question. When Mm -hmm. we present this as a strategy, parents still leave the room, but I swear they kiss me on their way out. They're like, thank you. Thank you and when i even say to the parent and the, uh, before they leave i want you to know that if something does come up i'm going to ask your child if we can bring you in if it's a if it's a life threatening issue you're going to definitely come in but i will talk to your child about how best to communicate with you and when you do come back for us to work together and for this strategy to work best it's important that your child knows that we can use you for guidance and for advice and for appropriate boundaries. But if your child can learn that this is a place to get out of trouble without ever fearing getting into trouble, we can do great work together. So can we agree that if something comes up, we put together a team to support your child, but don't punish them for what we learn in this visit. That takes a little bit of time to set the stage, but now that you've done it, you've now included the parent you have a partner they leave the room when necessary but we acknowledge their vital role
0: okay and just to clear the air right because you know we're we're professionals but we're also parents um we do matter right the parents yes. of teens Because our parents, our kids are telling us, like, I I don't want you in my life. I don't want you in my bedroom. I don't want you in my phone.
1: Because they love you so much, it hurts. This is where framing matters. And this is a perfect example of where um, teachers and doctors can make all the difference. Yes, there's truths. There's truths about kids pushing away their parents. That's undoubtedly true. But why? It's because If as you are developing your own sense of independence, you need to know you can stand on your own. And, you know, it's like when our children are babies, they're in a nest and they just go like this and they get these big juicy worms from one or two or these other adult birds who bring it to them. At some point, they begin to realize that um, they're going to need to get the worms on their own. And when they do that, they look at the parents bringing the worms, the big words, worms, the big birds. And instead of like saying thank you, they become like embarrassed by the way they breathe. And they look at the nest and instead of seeing it as warm and fluffy, they begin imagining it as prickly. And when they really need to leave, they begin seeing the nest as uninhabitable. That is a temporary process Mm -hmm. where... Mm -hmm. Kids push us away, not because they don't love us, but because they love us and have relied on us so intensely that it hurts. There is a perfect framing of what a youth serving professional can help parents understand that literally makes parents cry. It takes two minutes and parents just go, oh, and once you know that you can get through so much more. As your child's pushing you away, instead of being hurt and angry, you're like, "Gosh, they love me. Mm-hmm. I've got to give them space right now."
0: Right? I it's love all the framing. I love this nest example. Can I, can I push you a little bit? Like, so that's a two-minute talk for a parent. What about a parent who's experienced a lot of trauma? And that parents also bring in, into the room, their own hurt. And when their kid is saying no, they feel personally rejected. What, how do you script to those parents?
1: So what parents, we cannot ask parents to deny their truths, nor should we, but we ask them to be role models and we ask them to help give their child the security that will allow their child to heal and to thrive and to launch into a secure future. What enables you to launch into a secure future? It's knowing that you're loved. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Why do we love? We love so that children know they are worthy of being loved. Hear that. Mm -hmm. Let that sit on your mind for a minute. We love so that children know they are worthy of being loved. And when children know that they are worthy of being loved, then they can withstand many negative forces in their lives, whether it's bullying, whether it's someone who doesn't see them as they deserve to be seen. When the person who knows them the most, loves them without condition, knows what's good about them, knows their history, knows their challenges, and still loves them without condition, that is an unbelievable amount of security that child earns. Well, you know what? If you've been through something, and you didn't have what you deserved. If you didn't have the security, did you hear what I used? Words are everything. Deserved. Dr. Amy, I didn't say need. If you didn't yeah. get what you need, I said if you didn't get what you deserved, right? That's strength based language. If you didn't get what you deserved, then you better than anybody else knows what a human being needs. You better than anybody else knows that your child needs security you shouldn't pretend that life has always been perfect for you or that life is perfect for you in the present. That's not the way you're going to support your child. You're going to support your child by letting them understand that you're human and that, and how you deal with how complicated life should be. To use another, or can be, to use another metaphor, you have a five-year-old. Um, five-year-old's want to see their child, their parent like the duck gliding on the water, just smooth and easy. They want to look at that duck and go, that's my security. That duck's got no problems. But if you have a parent, if you are a parent of an adolescent and you look like that duck gliding on water, you don't look real and they can't learn from you and they just feel worse about the complexity uh, of their feelings. So instead, we look at the parent who suffered and we say, I'm sorry for what you've been through, but my goodness, what a model you can be for your child. We want them to look like the duck that's staying on top of the water, but not the one who's gliding, the one who's staying on the top of the water because their little feet are paddling like crazy. Mm-hmm. When we give parents permission to show their children what they're doing to paddle, how they're staying afloat, the supports they seek when they are struggling—all of that is good parenting, and it means that parents who have been through the most may actually be able to give the most to the child who's currently suffering.
0: That that message: the parents who've been through the most may be in a position to give the most that's really profound for a parent who's experienced trauma
1: well this brings us to really another point amy is how do we frame human beings do we frame them as broken or as resilient Mm
0: -hmm.
1: do we look only at the behavior they might be displaying in the moment and allow that to define them or do we enable their best selves to show? Mm -hmm. So what do we know about people who have suffered? People who have suffered um, sometimes behave badly. They are hypervigilant. They are overly reactive. Those are protections. Those are protective mechanisms that they have earned. Mm -hmm. And if they've suffered throughout childhood, they have neural pathways that make it so that they responsibly and instinctively move into these behaviors that sometimes push people away, that make them highly reactive, highly vigilant.
0: Okay, so let me pause you for a second. I want you all to hear that, right? These protective mechanisms that people have earned. So if you're a provider and somebody's you know, presenting, and they're grumpy, and they're fatigued, and they're barking at you, or they're not, you know, medically compliant with, you know, your recommendations. It's an important moment for pause, right?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to respond to that. And then I'm going to go back to the thread I was on. I, if you go to Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and if you ask people, what it's like to work with me or what the wards are like when I'm on. They will tell you Ken really can smooth things out nicely. Things go really calmly when he's on service. Would you like to know my secret, Amy?
0: Yes, absolutely. We're listening.
1: I'm faking because I am not a calm human being. (laughs) My need to be loved is off the charts pathologic. The feedback I like to receive from people, like, I just, gosh, I want to be loved. And that, you know, we can look at all the reasons that that's true. But that's who I am. So the first part of being trauma sensitive is actually knowing what is about you and what's not about you. (laughs) It is true that people who have suffered sometimes behave badly. And sometimes those daggers come in your direction. And when they come at me because people are angry about what's going on with their child or they don't like how the hospitalization is going, and they come at me, my intuitive human response is to become defensive. Once I become defensive and I think it's about me, then I get hurt. And when I get hurt, I don't function in my best way. And it's a slippery slope towards becoming offensive. Mm -hmm. But when I really do the head game, while things are happening, I'm in my own head, reminding myself of two key trauma-sensitive principles. Number one, knowing what is about me and not about me. And it's that the behavior that is displaying has been earned by them and I am able to hold it and absorb it without taking it personally. When I do that, I maintain the capacity to love and I avoid my own psychology because my own psychology gets hurt really easily and is deeply, deeply, if not pathologically sensitive. And I'm able to continue to love by drawing in the second principle, which is they've earned this. And drawing from the sanctuary movement from Dr. Sandy Bloom, it is changing your lens from what's wrong with you to something happened to you. So my secret is lots of self-talk, lots of self-work to tamp down my natural insecurities when people are not nice to me.
0: All right. I love this so much. And I have to ask this question about where you get and how you get into that headspace as a physician, because that means you've done a little bit of work too, to be not just to practice being trauma sensitive, but to, you know, as I might say, sweep off your own back porch so that your stuff doesn't get in the way of the patient or the resident or the parent that you're interacting with. How, how do you do that work?
1: So let's be clear. I've done work. By thinking about my own buttons, my own history, my own biases, and understanding what challenges me and what kind of situations challenge me the most, I've done my work. But, Amy, let me be really transparent. I am doing my work on a daily basis. This is not done, I'm not fixed. I work very intensely in real time to speak to myself, and remind myself how to remain loving. And the way I remain loving is to not take it personally because it's not about me. And and what this does, to get back into the other subject, is this enables me to Mm co-regulate, right? This allows me to stay calm, not flat. I'm anything but flat. I'm deeply emotional, but I'm also calm. And when I am calm, I can co-regulate. Best definition of co-regulation, you're on a plane, there's turbulence. Who do you look at? You don't look at the guy sitting next to you like this. You look at the flight attendant. And, you know, if they're still serving snack mix, you're cool, right? So, so we co-regulate. And so I co-regulate with a human being. Now, let's get back to this other person. This person who has been told they have an anger problem. They've got an undermining, horrible diagnoses like oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder, which I think everybody who's ever heard me knows I reject entirely. And um, they um, get these diagnoses. And what they really have is protector's brains. Mm-hmm. They have neural pathways and a history that means that their amygdalas are brilliant and highly reactive, Right and they see danger way before you do. And what that means is that they'll go off. But when we create deeply safe spaces, which is literally what I do at Covenant House with youth enduring homelessness, when you create deeply safe spaces, these people's amygdalas remain brilliant. They have a protector's brain but it doesn't need to be firing from a sense of danger, but it still remains highly protective. And what happens, they're not you needing self-protection and they have protection to spare. Mm. And That is the root of human compassion and altruism. And what that means is that, you know, people talk to me about like, you know, if I go to a party, People are like, Ken, you did it. You're such a saint or whatever they would say to a Jewish guy, right? You know, you're such a good person for doing this. And, and it's like, no, have you met my kids? Have you met my families? They're the most compassionate, loving beings on earth when they feel safe. It's my job to create the safety. And then you see their protective nature come out right so so my point is like lower standards on people who suffer uh uh-uh create safe spaces to let them rise to show you what they bring to the world i
0: i have i want to just reiterate again what you just said i love this compassion comes when we have protection to spare because we feel so safe Mm -hmm. um for the professionals listening that work with kids and families and patients, please hear that. If, if right, we can't create compassionate environments unless there's safety that's present. It's impossible. Right? Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears a little bit because I really, I want people to hear more about your work that you've been doing um, around resilience. One of the things that maybe is a, is a, a catalyst to talking about that is that a couple of times you've talked about unconditional love. And I know in your book, you talk about the importance of kids experiencing unconditional love. And yet in my work with parents, it's, they get really stuck there. They often because they haven't experienced it, but can you talk a little bit more about why that is, is just a core assumption around this work in resilience
1: Yeah. So, you know, people, let's define some terms. Loving and liking are not the same thing, right? Loving as I would be, as somehow I come up with the definition of love, right? But love is seeing someone as they deserve to be seen, as they really are, not through the lens of a behavior they might be displaying or a label that they might have received, so it's a truly active listening process or knowing process if you're a parent. It's different than liking or approving. You don't have to like everything. Loving is different. And where parents freak out when we talk about the unconditionality of love, it's like, but I don't want their new drugs. Well, neither do I, right? I'm not telling you to approve drugs. What I'm approving, you know, it's not like Johnny, it's okay, you're doing drugs. Unconditional love and presence says, Johnny, you're doing drugs and I'm not going anywhere. Mm. But then it goes to the next step. So unconditional love is paired with high expectations. And too many parents or just adults think that high expectations is about grades or trophies or performance, but instead, If you really know your child, all that is good and right, or in my my case, clinically, when I listen to young people, I am listening for their behaviorally operational strengths. I'm not listening for something to praise. I'm listening for who they really are. Resilience in the context of a life that would destroy many. Compassion beyond measure. Insight beyond their years. Um, I'm listening for who they really, really are. When I'm working with a parent, I help them get to the core character values of their child, integrity, honesty, compassion. What, who is your child? Then when we hold to high expectations, we're not saying I need you to get straight A's. We're saying I know who you are. Yeah. And right now, that's not showing. How do we bring out that strength of yours? because then a child can return to being their best self. Even when they're messing up, someone sees that. And this is the kind of thing, honest to goodness, we can facilitate in our health offices. And for teachers who might be on the call or educators, oh my gosh, you're the most important people in the lives of kids, other than parents. And when parents aren't there, let's be clear, parents are the most important people in the lives of kids. But when they're unable to fill their, and when they're able to fill the roles, people on this call, we're all additive. When they're unable, we become irreplaceable and critical, Mm. right? But we can always get parents to understand their vital
0: role. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to ask the practical question on that note for every provider here, because they all, and and teacher as well, because they all ask me this question, you know, when they're trying their best to be strength-based and they're trying to point out factors of resilience and they say, tell me things that you really love about your kid. Tell me their strengths. And the parent goes, "Um, now what?
1: So that tells you what the journey is, right? Similarly, if I work with a young person who's suffering and they say they have no strengths, then I continue to have a conversation. And really remember that when you're asking um, about people's strengths directly, It's really hard for some people to answer, right? That's data. That's information that they're not able to do it. But now what you do is you continue to take your history and you gather information. You listen to a story. Tell me about something that they did that made them proud. Or if a parent is angry at you and not at you, at the kid, because they're (laughs) screwing up in this way and that, say, Tell me why you're angry. Tell me about why this isn't the child you know. There are ways of hearing the story. And then, real strength based communication is not the first question like, tell me what's good and right about your child. Check. It's active listening to have a story unfold. And then, it's in the summative that we reveal the strengths. It's in the summative. You know, after spending time with you, here's what I've heard. You're angry as heck. You're angry as heck because you love and you care because you know your child is capable of X, Y, and Z, and you're not seeing it. Young person's name. I know that you're feeling your mom's anger and disappointment. No question. I see it in your face. Are you also feeling why? She's feeling this angry because it's her love for you. Do you feel that also? We can summarize visits in that way that are really I, I literally make people cry for a living.
0: Yeah, yeah. same, same. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> so
0: I, I love what you're saying. You're you're doing so many important things though for that parent, right? You're giving them a script, you're modeling for the parent about what that felt sense of safety can be like in their relationship. You're giving words that maybe that child's never heard. Certainly the parent may have never heard growing up. So you're healing, you know, what we would call intergenerational traumas. There's so much happening. I I think that's what I want. People to know is that the power that you have to influence and change relational dynamics between kids and parents. Um, what did you say before, Kim? Parents are the most important thing, but when when they're unable, the rest of us are irreplaceable.
1: Right. We're additive when parents can do their jobs. We are um, critical when they can't. And Amy, I'd like to add one thing to the list of things you're you're doing, or you said I was doing, which is I'm also not denying their emotions. I'm not telling them to set aside their emotions. I'm actually validating, but reframing it for them to help them understand that it comes from a place of caring. And that is pivotal, right? And these are all things that can happen in our offices, right? I can't do therapy in the office, but I can really frame and remind people of why they love. I can move people towards therapy in a strength-based way. And actually, if I could just tell you on Center for Parenting and Team Communication, if you want to get to one article, just look at preparing teens to get professional help. Strength-based oh. language, strength-based language that, can, that we can all do in our offices. We can even, if we have a minute, we could just say, I hear you. I hear your worry. And I know it comes from a place of love. I'd love you to see this resource so that when you're getting your child or guiding your child to get help, they know that it's cause of how much you love them. And then you just click and give them the resource. Like humbly, I've produced a lot of these things to make it easy for busy practices to implement this stuff.
0: Awesome. And Tegan, just put that for all of you in the chat box, um, the direct link to seeking help. So it's right there for all of you at your fingertips. Um, Why is it important to talk to kids in such a compassionate way?
1: Gosh, I, 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 I don't know how to answer that question because it's, it's not important. It's the whole show, right? It, it's everything.
0: You your whole list as a pediatrician and you're walking in, you've got your healthy family rubric, all the things you have to cover in a well child check. And this is what I hear, Ken, when I'm talking about the important, yeah, I, right?
1: I, I do too. Um, I, I love pediatricians. I'm a pediatrician and pediatricians are the one most likely to say to me, "Can I love you, but I have to go through the list. And what I'll tell you, I know that. Um. What I'll tell you is that nothing matters as much as relationship and, And going through the list is not what's going to really change a life. What's going to change a life is a young person knowing that if they're in trouble, they can always turn to you. Can I do one minute of teaching right here, Amy? So listen, you know, I'm this strength-based communication guy. And all these folks believe that um, strength-based communication is about praise. I want you to hear what I'm about to teach you. This is literally in two minutes, the most important thing I teach. So all the time, we as pediatricians or teachers, kids tell us their stories. So, hey, Dr. Ken, I got straight A's. I'm so proud of you. Look at you. You want to be a lawyer when you grow up so you can work for justice. You're, you're getting straight A's. I believe you can do it. I'm so intensely proud. Thank you for telling me about your grades. And then what happens? The kid gets the uh, grades the next uh, semester. They call you. They're really proud. The next semester, they get all A's, 1B+. plus. They call you. They're proud. And then their dad dies Mm. or goes to prison Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and their mom becomes depressed and they're suddenly in charge of the three little brothers and sisters at home and they're doing homework with them and they're not doing their own homework till 11 and then they smoke weed before they go to bed and they only get three hours sleep because they have to wake up at four and then they fall asleep in class and the teacher says, why are you coming if you're not willing to stay awake? And now they're getting D's will they come to me? No. If you ask kids what they want most from adults in their lives, they want to know that someone has their back. And what too many professionals do is we become cheerleaders. Mm
0: -hmm. And when
1: we become cheerleaders, we are saying our relationship is predicated on forward movement. And as a result, when the kid needs us the most, they don't come to us because they don't want to disappoint us. And if we just teach, if I had like literally a minute and a half with every pediatrician, I would say, don't praise what they're telling you. Praise the relationship. Dr. Ken, I got straight A's. I love being included in your life. I love when you tell me what's going on. That way, when the kid really needs me, when they're in crisis and they're depressed, they remember, you know what Dr. Ken says? He likes knowing what's going on. I can go to no him. No matter what. No matter what. And that's what saves lives. And God bless the AAP standards and checklist. But the real difference that we make in kids' lives is being there during critical moments.
0: Yes. Yes. And saying to them, we're here in this relationship together. I love this so much. Um, You know, you're you're talking a lot about talking to residents and parents. You work at the Covenant Houses, which for kids who are experiencing homelessness. Um, What do you do as a physician when the work feels hard? How do you take care of yourself? What practices do you engage in?
1: It's a really good question, and I don't think I would have answered it well a few years ago. Um, I have a very strong family. Um, at this point I have, um, uh, I actually turn off on a lot of weekends. I go camping almost every weekend, um, where I authentically turn off. Um, but the real answer that we want to be really careful about is not telling people how to turn off, right? Because, you know, yoga class at five, that's not the answer because that fractionates us from our real lives. Something I've been working on really intensely with healers is helping them to understand how to integrate self-care into the real lives. That's serving in a loving way. It's serving with appropriate boundaries. It is um, uh, giving power to the people who really have it, which is the people who are going through um, the issues in their life and avoiding the rescue fantasy that makes me think I'm supposed to solve other people's problems. Being trauma-sensitive means that the expert is standing in front of me mm-hmm. and I just need to support them to find their ruby slippers right that's what allows me to turn off and I'll tell you something else just for you know this to be shared the the real ways in which we professionals suffer is that what we get exposed to in our professional lives we bring home to our families and let me be clear I don't mean bringing it home and talking about it that's good what I mean and what breaks our families apart is when we change our expectations of our own children, spouses, and lovers because other people have suffered. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, you know, I'll give you an example. There was a day I was at Covenant House's, the worst day imaginable, and um, I don't remember what happened, but I came home and, and my I twin daughters, it was their senior prom night. They were incredibly upset because they had gotten their hair done professionally and they had gotten smoky eyes, which is apparently black makeup around your eyes. And <laughs> after they did this, they realized that um, it was gonna look bad in pictures. And they were like trying not to cry because it was gonna make the eyes worse, but they were incredibly upset. And every corpuscle of my being wants to go like, WTF, do you know what a real problem is? Do you know what a real problem is? Like, I'll tell you what suffering is, And it's not your smoky eyes, not looking good. The day we do that is the day we lose our families.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: day we change the standard. I dream of a world not where people suffer. I dream of a world where every one of my kids could be upset because their makeup doesn't look good. Mm -hmm. That's the world I want. And when we bring home our work and tell our own family that they don't have a right to every single emotion, that's when we break down. And I'm proud to say that that's something I've never done. So when you ask me how I get by, I love my family deeply. And every time I impulsively was going to change my relationship with them based on what I see, something inside my head said, danger, 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 don't do it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I thank you for sharing that, first of all. Um, I'm glad they got through smoky eyes and all. (laughs) Um, I, I, share your passion. You know, I tell people and I'm not joking, right. My hope is to be out of a job. If we keep yeah. doing this work, then, um, we're not, we're, we're in this space where the problem that we have is, you know, um, a tough day at school or the makeup that we're wearing versus, um, the other really difficult things that we know that kids and families face. Okay. So, um, I want to let. I'm going to let Ken go in here in just a minute, but can I practice with you some uh, quick, rapid-fire questions before I let you go tonight? I think. Okay, I, you're going to do
1: great. That sounds scary to me, but go ahead.
0: Okay, um, and then I promise to all the rest of you, we'll we'll do the drawings that I promised for all of you, and we'll we'll talk just a bit more before I let you go. Okay, so um, what's one thing that people get wrong about doctors?
1: I think it's that they don't understand that doctor means to teach. Mm. And if they actually really understood that, um, I think our relationships would be better. And then if we understood that the best teachers are the people who learn from their patients.
0: Oh, so good. The expert in front of you. That's what you said, right? Um, if you got to go back and give your young resident self one piece of advice, what would it be?
1: It's okay to be uneven,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So I, um, I have learning differences. I can't read an EKG because I see too many things at once. It's the fact that I see too many things at once that makes me a dang good adolescent doctor. Mm-hmm. But I hated what I couldn't do instead of celebrating all that was good and right in right. me.
0: Yes. um. All right, last rapid fire question. Um, and this is almost true for you because you're on East Coast time. It's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What do you reach for?
1: Oh gosh, I don't know. It's probably gonna be ice cream. Oh. And most certainly it's gonna be like chocolate or it's chocolate with stuff in
0: it. Perfect. Ice cream is really just the the delivery mechanism for all the stuff. Absolutely. (laughs) Awesome. Ken, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for being here. Thank you for staying up late. You still have work to do, I know. Um, But can everybody, if you can turn on your cameras and just give like a virtual um, high five round of applause, heart emoji, all the things just for look at all those lovely faces. Um, just thank you for being here with all of us and for all the work you're doing for kids. Tegan has put all the things in the chat box, all the links, all the ways to find Ken. Um, but thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for your work. Um, I use it every day and every practice and every training that I do. Um, thanks for showing up for kids and families.
1: Truly an honor and a privilege. And thank you all for what you do. And Amy, I'm really excited about this for everyone, what you're putting together.
0: Thank right. you. Thanks, good night. bye alright you Bye-bye. All right, y'all. Um, yay for Dr. Ginsburg, huh? That was super amazing and fun. And I feel like I could have talked to him all night. Um, I saw like those of you with cameras on, like nodding your head and taking notes and writing things down and all the things.